Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal con artists episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find these original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cases of suspicious celebrity deaths. With the intriguing aura around Hollywood and society's obsession with celebrities, it's no surprise that celebrity deaths are often mired in suspicion and conspiracy theories. But why are we so intrigued by celebrity death? And why is the intrigue amplified when the death is unexpected? David Kaplan, former president of the American Counseling Association, explains that social media is flooded with posts when a celebrity dies because of the bond we feel watching them on screen. Kaplan says that when someone has followed a celebrity's career for so long, they feel intimately familiar with that person's life. Therefore, it can feel as if a family member has died. Conversely, psychologist Dr. Simon Moore believes that we are intrigued by the details of celebrity deaths because we feel reassured by the fact that someone with more money, power, and fame is subject to the same rules of mortality that we are, whether it be suicide, drug addiction, or murder. It makes us feel more secure in our modest apartments and office jobs because at least we're not them. But when a celebrity's death involves some suspicious element, such as murder or conspiracy, we're all the more intrigued due to what criminologist Scott Bond calls thrill-seeking. True crime gives the law-abiding citizens a boost of adrenaline without ever leaving the couch or being in an actual dangerous situation. We'll start our exploration with a clip from ParCast original Conspiracy Theories that discusses the media-sensationalized death of actress and sex icon Marilyn Monroe. Nearly 60 years after her death, Monroe continues to be a pop culture icon. Monroe's private life was the subject of much Hollywood gossip in the 1950s. She was involved in two highly publicized marriages and divorces, and battled addiction and depression. When she died of a prescription overdose in 1962, it was ruled a suicide but many believe there was something more behind her cause of death. On August 4, 1962, Marilyn spent most of the afternoon in her room after having an argument with her friend and publicist Pat Newcomb in the morning. Newcomb stayed at the house for the rest of the afternoon. At about 3 or 4 p.m., Marilyn's housekeeper, Eunice Murray, called over her psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson. 
She claims she called him because she was troubled by Marilyn's request for an oxygen treatment, even though oxygen was a well-known hangover cure at the time. Dr. Greenson arrived around three or four. Pat Newcomb left, and Greenson spoke to Marilyn in her room for about an hour. Greenson left, asking Murray to stay at Marilyn's house overnight and keep an eye on her. Marilyn took a telephone into her room and spent the night making calls to friends and acquaintances. Everyone she spoke to agreed she didn't sound drugged or depressed, and she gave no indication she was considering suicide. At around 10 p.m., she set the receiver down during a call and never returned. Around 10.30, she made one last call to Peter Lawford, her friend and the husband of Patricia Kennedy. During the call, she apparently drifted into unconsciousness and stopped responding. At either midnight or 3 a.m., she changed her story later in the morning. Eunice Murray woke up and noticed the light in Marilyn's room was still on, but she wasn't responding. She called Dr. Greenson, who broke in through the bedroom window and found Marilyn lying dead, clutching the telephone next to empty pill bottles of a prescription sedative called Nembutal and a nearly empty bottle of another sedative, chloral hydrate. Greenson called Marilyn's physician, Dr. Hyman Engelberg, who came over and officially pronounced her dead. At 4.25 a.m., the police were called. Murray, Greenson, and Engelberg initially told investigator Jack Clemens that Marilyn's body had been found at midnight, creating a four-hour gap between discovering the body and calling the police that none of them could account for. Clemens was relieved by Sergeant Marvin Ianone, who sealed up the house until the full investigative force arrived at about 5.30. When the investigators questioned them later that morning, Murray, Greenson, and Engelberg all changed their stories to say that Marilyn's body hadn't been discovered until 3 a.m. Inconsistencies in the forensic evidence and the witnesses' stories baffled the police. But it did appear to be a suicide, so they held off on opening an official investigation until the coroner confirmed the cause of death. The coroner's investigation went on for less than a week, during which they interviewed none of the key witnesses except for Maryland's psychoanalyst, Dr. Ralph Greenson. After speaking with Dr. Greenson, the deputy DA leading the investigation said he was completely convinced that Maryland's death was not a suicide. The medical examiners performing the autopsy also believed the death couldn't have been a suicide. But despite those findings, the coroner officially ruled the cause of death as a probable suicide. Over the past five decades, even more evidence has emerged to suggest that Marilyn's death was not, in fact, a suicide. There have been repeated calls to reopen the investigation into Maryland's death, some as recent as 2002. This should not be a closed case. It should be an open case by the DA. There's too too many uh, people, too much overwhelming evidence that proves that this was not a suicide. And I think that Maryland needs closure. The difficulty with finding the truth is that nearly all the key figures involved in Marilyn's death are now dead themselves, and the statements they gave during their lifetimes were often contradictory. 
Many of the witnesses who have spoken out against the official story have been discredited as liars, fame seekers, and conspiracy theorists, despite evidence that they might be telling the truth. And many of the people who upheld the official story had their own hidden agendas. It was in their best interest to end the inquiry into Marilyn's death as quickly as possible. Following that clip from Conspiracy Theories, Monroe's death sent shockwaves across the media, so much so that the Chicago Tribune reported an influx of calls from readers, overloading their switchboards. Many conspiracy theories about Monroe's demise have offered a wide range of claims. Some believe that her doctors accidentally overdosed her, others that Robert F. Kennedy murdered her. But ultimately, Monroe's cause of death has remained a suicide. A celebrity taking their own life is shocking enough. But what happens when a famous person is the one suspected of taking the life of another? And what if their victim is also a celebrity? Coming up, we'll follow a case where the perpetrator is just as famous as their victim. Now back to the show. We've seen so far how a celebrity's death can spark widespread public interest. But what happens when both the victim and their suspected killer are famous? That is the case in our next clip from Unsolved Murders, covering the death of Natalie Wood. In November of 1981, Wood felt like she had it all. She was a movie megastar, married to actor Robert Wagner. She, Wagner, their friend Christopher Walken, and boat captain Dennis Deverne had taken a yacht out on a weekend trip to Catalina Island. But as they headed back to their boat after an alcohol-fueled dinner on the island, Wagner and Wood got into an argument. Well, Doug Bombard was both the owner of the restaurant and the Catalina Harbor Master. He was also a friend of Wood and Wagner's. Concerned for his friend's safety, Doug escorted the trio back to their boat. After some drunken stumbling, Doug managed to get the three actors on board. But Robert and Natalie had both become visibly upset. In an effort to avoid tension, Dennis, Robert's yacht captain, brought the group to the salon at the back of the ship and tried to continue the party. Doug rescinded the invitation and went home while Dennis made an effort to distract Robert. But as Natalie continued to converse with Christopher, Robert's jealousy overwhelmed him. He confronted Christopher and asked him if he was trying to sleep with his wife while throwing a bottle of wine against the wall in a fit of rage. Christopher vehemently insisted that was not his goal and Natalie pulled Robert away. Christopher left the room as Natalie and Robert began to argue. The argument lasted for hours. Christopher went to bed, while Dennis listened nervously on the other end of the boat. After some time, Dennis decided to check in on them. And Robert turned his anger on him, which according to Dennis, was so intense that Dennis genuinely feared for his own life. Frightened, Dennis went back upstairs and turned up the music in order to drown out the fight that was happening below him. Then, around midnight, the fighting stopped. And there was silence. Dennis waited ten minutes or so. Then he went and checked on his employer, 
he found Robert sitting at the ladder to the dinghy, curled up and crying. Dennis asked Robert what was wrong. Robert responded by telling him that Natalie had gone missing. Dennis found this odd for several reasons. While the yacht was large, it wasn't large enough for someone to truly go missing on board. And Dennis had just heard Natalie yelling at Robert only 10 minutes before. Dennis asked his boss if he should turn on the boat's searchlight or call the Coast Guard. Perhaps Natalie had fallen overboard, and they might need the Coast Guard's assistance. However, Robert insisted they neither turn on the searchlight nor call for help. He claimed they should just wait for Natalie, as she was bound to return at any moment. Against his better instincts, Dennis listened to Robert. Robert was his employer and Natalie's husband. He thought that Robert probably knew best. As they waited, Robert cracked open a bottle of scotch and the duo drank. They waited a full hour for Natalie to return, but by 1.30 a.m. on November 29th, there was no sign of her. At this point, Dennis insisted that they do something. Waiting wasn't helping them find Natalie. Robert agreed, but he still refused to call the Coast Guard. Instead, he called his friends in town on Catalina and asked if they had seen Natalie anywhere that night. Robert's friends told him to sit tight while they searched the town. Robert and Dennis waited once more. But by 3.30 a.m., it became clear that Natalie was nowhere to be found. Finally, Dennis convinced Robert to call the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard was shocked to hear their story, and they ranted to each other as they shipped off to find Natalie Wood. We're looking for the Natalie Wood? Do you think we'll be able to get her autograph? She's been missing for over three hours. It's freezing cold, it's raining, it's dark, and they say she can't swim a lick. I doubt she'll be in any shape to give a goddamn autograph. The Coast Guard scoured the waves for hours, searching desperately for Natalie. The bright, iridescent glow of their searchlights was slowly replaced by the rising sun. Doug Bombard, the Catalina Harbor director who knew Natalie, joined the search as soon as he heard that she was missing. At 7.44 a.m. on November 29, 1981, Doug's boat found something. Near, near the cliff, there, there's a dinghy on the kelp. Slow the boat down. From the looks of it, that dinghy belongs to Wagner. I'm sure she's nearby. But if she made it to land, wouldn't someone have found her by now? She didn't make it to land. There. Bobbing on the waves. A red parka and dark brown hair. In that clip from Unsolved Murders, after Natalie Wood's body was found, her death was initially ruled as an accidental drowning. But the case was reopened in 2011, after boat captain Dennis DeVerne admitted he lied to police about the night of the drowning. DeVerne publicly stated that he believed Wood's husband, Robert Wagner, was responsible for her murder. He told police that Wagner was reluctant to call the Coast Guard to investigate. This led to the 2012 amendment to Wood's cause of death, from accidental drowning to drowning and other undetermined factors. As of 2019, Wagner has been named a person of interest by police. 
but there have been no further changes to Wood's death certificate, and no arrests have been made. While neither of the deaths covered in our previous clips have been officially ruled murders, in our final clip from Not Guilty, actor Robert Blake was accused of killing his wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley. On May 4, 2001, Robert and Bonnie had just finished eating dinner when Bonnie was shot sitting in the car outside of the restaurant. Detective Ronald Ito arrived at the scene and Robert Blake agreed to accompany Ito back to the police station for an interview. Ito asked Blake to walk him through the events of the evening. They went to dinner at Vitello's. Blake reported that before they left the house, Bonnie asked him to bring along one of his guns. She thought someone was stalking her and felt safer with his 38 nearby. They parked on the street, a little over a block away from the restaurant. The hostess sat them in Blake's customary corner booth around 8.30 p.m. After they ate, Blake paid the bill, his receipt timestamped 9.23 p.m. But when they reached his car, he realized that he'd left his jacket and the 38 caliber handgun in the booth. He left Bonnie to wait while he went back to the restaurant to retrieve them. While there, he asked for two glasses of water and drank them both. When he got back to the car at 9.38 p.m., he found Bonnie had been shot twice. She was barely alive. Frantic, Blake ran to the nearest house and banged on the door. He had to try more than one house before someone would answer. When they did, he insisted that they call 911. Police registered the call at 9.40 p.m. Blake then ran back to Vitello's to see if there was a doctor present. Terry Lorenzo Castaneda, a nurse, jumped up from her dinner to help. But by the time they reached Bonnie, she was bleeding from her eyes, nose, and mouth. Castaneda couldn't do anything. Then the lights and sirens arrived. By the time the ambulance reached the hospital at 10.15 p.m., Bonnie was dead on arrival. Blake then reiterated to Ito that Bonnie had pissed off a lot of people over the years with her letter scheme. She had plenty of reasons to think someone was following her. This was probably the work of some guy she bilked. Revenge. Ito wrote down the theory, but also noted how quickly Blake turned from visceral grief, moaning on the sidewalk, to trash-talking the deceased mother of his child. So far, it appeared to Detective Ito that Robert Blake had plenty of motive to kill his wife and ample opportunity. He also had the means. Blake owned several guns in addition to the 38 caliber. But the forensics team found no significant gunpowder residue when they tested his hands and no blood on his clothes. Bonnie was shot at point-blank range. It was unlikely that the shooter could have walked away free of any spatter. Frustrated, Ito sent Blake home. He knew he was missing something. He needed more information. Following the events of that clip from Not Guilty, Two men came forward and told police that Robert Blake had offered them money to kill Bakley in the months before her death. Blake was subsequently arrested and charged with murder. 
Ultimately, he was found not guilty of Bakley's murder. But after the criminal trial, Bakley's surviving family members sued Robert Blake in civil court. He was found liable for the wrongful death of his wife and ordered to pay damages. With the endless conspiracy theories and vast media coverage of celebrity death, all the clips today highlight the intersection between our fascination with true crime and our obsession with Hollywood. And as Dr. Simon Moore said, it's perfectly normal to search for the sordid details about a celebrity's passing because it serves the psychological function of boosting our self-esteem. Even decades after they were laid to rest, these celebrities have television episodes, movies, and podcasts covering their deaths and the mysterious circumstances around them. Marilyn Monroe continues to be an enduring figure of Hollywood. Today, she even has an official Twitter handle that shares photos and quotes from her life. Though Robert Blake's film and television career never recovered after his acquittal, he has been able to move on emotionally. In 2017, he announced he was engaged to his third wife, 16 years after Bonnie's death. Thanks for tuning into ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on suspicious celebrity deaths. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode on notorious assassins. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Conspiracy Theories, Unsolved Murders, or Not Guilty on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.